Working for Crusoe, Sam Park, John Ramey with you. This week we will discuss the latest jobs report from the United States Department of Labor. We will talk about the Chinese brokered Iran-Saudi Arabia agreement and just developments with Saudi Arabia. Um, We may touch on uh, the French president visiting Beijing. Sure. And uh, I have a kicker story, a kicker story, Sam. It's a lighthearted, funny story that goes at the end of the newscast. Okay. Um, And uh, it is neither related to uh, (laughs) economics or foreign affairs, but I think you'll like it. Yeah. Jobs report, 236,000 jobs added last month, according to the Labor Department. The unemployment rate down to 3.5%. It was at 3.6% in February. These, of course, are the March job numbers. The industries that are sensitive to borrowing costs flat with jobs or lost jobs, uh, construction, financial activities, retail, manufacturing, warehousing. Do I have that right? As, as far as I can tell you, yeah, that, that's very much in line yeah. with what I've heard. Yeah, that's, I'm reading the New York Times. Um, so this is, this means the Fed is, uh, is getting what it wants, right? Essentially, I mean, this is fewer jobs than have been added in recent month. uh, That is per month, uh, per each recent month. Uh, but it's still adding jobs, right? So, uh, we'll have to see how things go in the future. Uh, I think that the Fed might prefer that fewer jobs had been added uh, because we'll have to see what kind of impact this has on inflation, essentially. The Fed's main concern right now is still inflation, which is still uncomfortably high for them uh, and for the rest of us, by the way. In fact, more so for the rest of us. So uh, if the slowing of uh, job growth uh, helps mitigate inflation, then this is good news. But if it doesn't mitigate inflation very much, then the Fed might have to continue raising interest rates as time goes on. Now, as we mentioned before, the Fed doesn't meet again until May. So I'm pretty sure that they're going to have another month of jobs figures to look at before they come to any interest rate decision, along with all the rest of the economic data that they're looking at. They'll be looking at the jobs numbers and in relation to the inflation figures that come out in the interim. Here is a data point from the latest jobs report that I thought was interesting. Uh, I don't know um, how correlated it is to inflation, but the year-over-year growth in average hourly earnings, right? So essentially inflation in earnings, Hourly, yes. it slowed slightly in March to four point two percent. Um, inflation's a little bit higher than that figure, but like that's in the United States. But but again, I'm not saying that they're linked, but it's no, kind they, of a, they, they it's kind of a real right? it's a real world linkage. Sure, I mean if you've got more money to again, what's the the in the definition of inflation? It's m- too much money chasing too few goods. If people have more money, then that enables them to purchase more goods. And so uh, wage growth uh, is believed by economists 
to add to inflationary pressures, very broadly speaking, mind you, right? It's not a one-to-one correspondence or anything like that. Nor is it a primary driver. Right. For instance, think about it the opposite way, right? If if wages were decreasing, that we would very easily see that as a disinflationary pressure. So if we flip that over again, then we can see that the converse should apply also. But it's not a, um, but it's not a primary driver of inflation, right? Uh, no, but it, uh, for instance, uh, it would be harder for there to be any for there to be any degree of inflation if wages were falling, right? Uh, so, Even with the supply chain issues of the of the post pandemic era, sure. Because it, I mean, again, it's too much. Again, I guess if these, you don't have money, you can't pay too much for something. Yeah, too much money chasing too few goods. Now, one of those factors might be more important than the other. Uh, or vice versa, but both of them have to be in play at the same time. The other thing about it is that uh, any economist will tell you, unless they're a bozo, right, that uh, inflation is only partly about the actual economic conditions. In in other words, in, in addition to the amount of money and the amount of goods, there's expectations. And this is because economics is a behavioral science right so it's not just the actual conditions but it's what consumers think is going to happen so if if your wages are suddenly lower you will what they at least might think about adjusting your spending patterns to adjust to that right so it's like oh i i i better start buying store brand food or paper towels or whatever, right? I mean, uh, it's cheaper of, gas, the yeah, lower you know, octane the, gas. Yeah, exactly. Right. Maybe I won't buy that car. Right. Uh, and so uh, expect and that's why economists don't like inflation and neither does anybody else, because once inflationary expectations become entrenched in a population, they are very difficult to detrench i don't know if that's a word but you uh, once they get built in it's really hard to take them out it's Uh, interesting when you hear conversations both about inflation and also about recession you will hear folks say careful now it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy right and that's that and that and they say that for a very good reason right is that if again if people expect inflation inflation will happen for instance i remember very early in the pandemic there was an episode of what I would call pseudo inflation, which you might recall in regards to toilet, toilet paper, paper. Right now, I call it pseudo inflation because there was no shortage of toilet paper. Right, the, the toilet supply, the toilet paper supply chain was working just fine. Right, there was not yet an excess of money in the economy because the stimulus hadn't gone out yet. But inflationary behavior patterns took root very quickly and people started buying all the toilet paper they could find. Uh, and this is the rate of demand went off the charts due to a, um, a, a not real factor. Exactly. But this was sort of inflationary behavior without actual inflationary condition. So I guess I'm thinking about this in uh, zoological terms. If the, if the herd of, uh, whatever gazelles upon the plane think there's a lion in the bu- i don't know if lions hunt gazelles if think there's a predator in the bush and they all rush away from it 
that's the reality, whether there's actually a predator in the bush or not. Exactly. That's yeah. It's well, not exactly, but yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. I mean, I see why economists are generally very careful with their words because, again, you can spook markets and you can you can spook consumer bases. Exactly right, and and uh, for instance, that was part of what happened with the the bank failure the other month, right? Was that you know uh, people said, "Oh, I've got to start taking my money out of the bank because it might not be there," right? That's how you get a bank failure, right? It's just because people, uh, you know, people might start taking their money out of perfectly sound banks uh, just because they're scared. Right. And the bank fails because they've done this, even though there wasn't anything actually wrong with the bank. I mean, it it is surprising when you think about it. If you don't think about economics all the time, it's surprising how much of the actual entire global financial system just requires people to be cool. Just be cool. Yes. But that's that's uh, I would say much of modernity relies on that, which we can you know expand upon as need be in future episodes. But, but you know, th- that would be a very long conversation, I think. Shall we pivot to Saudi Arabia? Sure, why not? So I was looking on this topic because you curate the topics quite well. And I happened upon an article, a uh, co-authored article in Foreign Policy Magazine, Syed Golkar and Kasra Arabi, uh, who are wildly credentialed uh, academics. And they wrote an article about the motivation behind Iran's deal with Saudi Arabia. Now, I know you want to talk about Saudi Arabia, but the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia and China are all kind of on the same anti-West page is the point of this article. And yes, I think that's very broadly true. and, and, And Saudi Arabia more so than before. Right, because, of course, Saudi Arabia has had a very consistent customer in the West. Well, they've had many of them, right? right? I mean, uh, th- there's a misconception, right, that somehow the United States gets all of its oil from Saudi Arabia, which is just not true, right? We actually get very little oil from the Arab world. Has uh, it ever been true that we got the majority of our oil from the Arab world? I'm not sure, but it's certainly not true today. That's uh, right. And, and has not been for the last 10 years easily, right? I would say more than that. For instance, I think that it might have been true. We're a net producer, not a net consumer of petroleum. Today, but we have been a net importer in a lo- uh, in, sure. in not so far past, right? Uh, I think we might have uh, gotten the majority of our oil from the Arab world up until the embargo of 73. I don't, I'm not sure about that. that it's sure. possible, right? But one of the results of the embargo was... Uh, finding other sources, right? Including, for instance, there was no Alaska pipeline before the embargo, and there is one now. And it's just, Uh, it's the same with fracking after 9-11. Exactly, right? And for that matter, like we talked about Nigeria uh, a few weeks ago, Um, that whole area of West Africa wasn't that big an oil supplier before the embargo. Uh, But suddenly it became a place that people started looking for, you know, that oil companies started exploring and producing oil from that region. And one of the reasons the embargo failed was because all these other sources came online that hadn't been online before, because the the price was high enough that the exploitation and or geopolitical risks involved in bringing that oil to market suddenly became worth paying for. Okay, so... To hell with Saudi Arabia. Go make friends with China and Iran, and we won't play ball with you anymore. 
Why is that not? That's not plausible, but why? I think it's actually in, increasingly plausible as time goes on. That's interesting. Uh, but that's because it's not like there's shared democratic values. Right. And in fact, as, you know, even less so as time goes on, although, you know, we can sort of parse out. For instance, there's a lot more social freedom in Saudi Arabia today than there has been in the past. Right. Women get to drive cars. Uh, there's uh, the weakening of male guardianship rules. Uh, and these things have come to pass uh, since the the uh, ascension of Mohammed bin Salman to the uh, station of crown prince. Uh, and he has instituted these reforms, which are very popular in Saudi Arabia itself, which has been, I think, reasonably thought of as a sort of puritanical uh, Muslim society, uh, being, of course, the uh, location of the holiest sites in Islam. Just a quick reminder for everybody who's not up to speed on uh, Middle Eastern political dynamics. If Saudi Arabia has been quasi-puritanical, only to reform recently, and Iran has been more or less puritanical for the last 44 years, why have they needed to come together with China brokering the agreement? Well, I mean, it's sort of like our discussion of China and Russia recently. Uh, there have been tensions between Arabs and Persians for, you know, written history forever. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, but I just, course, I wanted to highlight that because Iranians are not Arab or Persians no, are not Arab. That's right. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, they're going to be neighbors forever. Right. Is there so, also a Shia and a Sunni split? Of course, yes. Uh, however, uh, I think, uh, I can't remember the author, but the book we've both read called The Arabs, uh, I think that yes. book mentioned that whoever the emperor of Persia was in the 13th or 14th century. That's Eugene Rogan. Right, that's right. Uh, whoever the emperor, who I guess was called the Shah, yeah. Right. Uh, made Shia Islam the national religion of Iran, partly for what we would now call geopolitical reasons. He wanted there to be a national religion for Iran that was different from uh, the Sunni majority of Islam. Uh, so, uh, and that delineation is with us today. Yeah, so the book, the point I want to make is that the animosity is not based on the religion, but the reverse, right? Uh, it's the, it, the geopolitical animosity caused the religious uh, dispute uh, in in a reversal of what we might think would be the case. So the, Pers uh, the Persians wanted to make sure that they were different from the Arabs. Correct. Uh, but in to update this, uh, one of the reasons that that uh, there needed to be a brokered deal between these two countries today is really just the war in Yemen, which was a proxy war, essentially, between Iran and Saudi Arabia at the head of uh, a coalition of Arab monarchies. Uh, and it was ruinous. It was bad for everybody. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in this war in the past decade or so. Uh, not to mention the famine caused by it. And it wasn't doing any good for anybody, uh, but nobody could back down. Uh, so 
they've actually been trying to come to some kind of arrangement for a number of years already. Uh, but uh, I think that the Chinese helped bring this about partly for their own interests in wanting to be seen as a geopolitical power broker. Uh, and to great effect, by the way. Uh, this also sort of wrong foots the United States in that, uh, as you might recall, towards the very end of the Trump administration, there were signed what were known as the Abraham Accords, uh, which made restored that is restored diplomatic relations between Israel and some of the other Arab monarchies, including the United Arab Emirates, I believe Bahrain and Kuwait. I think were the, were the only Arab nations involved, not Saudi Arabia. However, it's been widely sort of gossiped that eventually Saudi Arabia would also join the Abraham Accords and that perhaps Prince, Prince Muhammad was waiting until his father, the actual king of Saudi Arabia, died, who's now 87 years old, and that he didn't feel he could sort of politically get away with doing this inside of his own domestic politics. I actually, and now it seems as though that's off the table, right? Right, because uh, if they're buddies with Iran, there's going to be no friendship with Israel. That's right. Uh, and now, but to say that they're going to be buddies, I think, might not, again. If they're going to have a working partnership with Iran, it would be awkward, right? Yes. Now, but we'll have to see how far this goes. All that they've done is, uh, you know, that, you know, there'll be air travel. There'll yeah, be, I, I actually was reading. It's not like there's some grand alliance. No, there's no, there's no parades in Tehran or Riyadh, right? I mean, uh, they're reopening the embassies, which have actually only been closed for seven years, right? It's really only in for seven years that these uh, relations have been uh, uh, cut off. Uh, again, they're going to be neighbors forever. They've been neighbors forever. They're going to continue to be. They've had relations. They have to, right? They, they can't afford not. For instance, another thing that, that uh, happened this week with Saudi Arabia was that they announced that they would join the what's called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Now, any of our listeners who have heard little to nothing about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization shouldn't feel bad at all, right? Because they don't really do much of anything. It's just sort of a talking. It's sort of like if you decided to form the John Ramey Cooperation Organization. But, you know, wonderful, right? I mean, uh, but the fact is the SCO uh, has lots of members, including but for instance, both India and Pakistan are members. Okay, of, that's interesting. Yeah, but is it right? Because so because, I guess if they don't do anything, it's not. Yeah, I mean, it, it, these are not two countries that we think of as cooperating a lot with one another. And for that matter, India and China don't really cooperate very much with each other either. But yet, they're both somehow members of the cooperation organization. So. Uh, this is mainly just a, it's sort of like, for instance, if you had the John Ramey Cooperation Organization, right? And let's say you also had an arch enemy who was called, I don't know, the Penguin or something, right? Uh, and if I was not a member of your organization, but I suddenly developed a dispute with the Penguin, uh, I might just join the JRCO just to go, hey, hey, Penguin, check me out. Look who I'm standing next to, right? Uh, 
then, you know, the Penguin would perhaps be annoyed. But that would really be the extent of it. So, again, we shouldn't make too big a deal of the Iran-Saudi rapprochement or of the uh, joining of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization by Saudi Arabia. However, it's not nothing, right? Uh, The Saudis know that China is the main geopolitical adversary of the United States. And so it is just sort of like them waving at the penguin, right? Saying, ah, 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 look at, you know, and, and that's, you know, not incredibly substantive, but it's also not nothing. What is more substantive is that the Saudis also announced this week uh, that as the head of OPEC plus, they were going to cut oil production, right? Now they know that inflation is a big concern for the United States. And if they cut, if OPEC plus cuts oil production, that will add to inflationary pressures on the United States. And so everywhere. That's actually, uh, that is, it's not going to have any real impact on domestic uh, supplies so for Saudi Arabia. So it does seem as though the Saudis are moving away from the American geopolitical orbit and towards the Chinese authoritarian one, which would make sense because Mohammed bin Salman is the first sort of singular authoritarian leader of his own country. In fact, I would say that today, Saudi Arabia is unquestionably the most important Arab nation uh, and the only one that's come out of the Arab Spring of about a decade ago considerably stronger than it was before, Uh, whereas most of the other Arab nations have been weakened by this. Uh, and we could go down the list, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, you know, on and on and on. Uh, Saudi Arabia is still very strong and only getting stronger. Was there an Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia? No, not at all. No. Yeah. Uh, in fact, almost none of the monarchies had one. Uh, I think there was just a little bit of trouble in Bahrain, uh, which was put down mainly with the assistance of Saudi military forces, by the way. I keep coming back to the fact that Joe Biden is right. There is the great 21st century struggle of authoritarianism. I mean, listen, we're not going to get on this podcast and talk about how great the United States is just because we're patriots, right? But the fact of the matter is the United States is a democracy and and we're, this is a pro-democracy, pro-Western kind of, you know, liberal values podcast. And the fact of the matter is the United States could not broker a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran simply because Iran wouldn't even talk to us. Like, we're not in a position. That's an excellent point. Right. right? And yeah. and that kind of sucks for America firsters. You know, that kind of sucks for us that China, well, authoritarian yeah, China can America do that. firsters, right? I mean, if you think, well, you know, I, I guess I should say American exceptionalists, right? Okay, fine. People who yeah. want a global hegemony run by the United States. By the way, I'm one of them. Right. If, if my options are the Chinese. Right. Yeah. It, it. I mean, diplomacy shouldn't be about vanity, but it's there's non-zero vanity involved. Well, again, it's sort of like our discussion of economics that we've just pivoted away from. Right. It's this, perception. We're talking about human behavior. Yeah. Right. I mean, Joe Biden campaigned in the first one of the early presidential debates in 2019, and he said he would make. Mohammed bin Salman, a pariah. But then once the war in Ukraine started, he had to go hat in yeah. hand 
to MBS and ask him to boost oil production and was rebuffed, right? Uh, MBS seemingly had not forgotten that Joe Biden had called him a pariah and and it would seem it's still not forgotten. Uh, now, of course, he has other reasons for doing this. It's just not like it's not just flipping off Joe Biden, right? But Biden didn't do these things for nothing. Right? It's not wasn't just personal on his end either, right? He did believe that MBS should be a pariah. He also did believe that he really needed the Saudis to boost oil production, uh, but. Uh, I don't think that there was much that would have stopped MBS from moving more into the authoritarian camp once these other things came to pass, Uh, because just that's who he is. Look, if I'm an authoritarian and there's a viable diplomatic partner or broker in the world that's not the United States, awesome. Yeah, and especially if if it's one of your fellow authoritarians. Right, yeah. And it it didn't help this week that at the same time that, like I believe it was yesterday, that the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia were in Beijing shaking hands and, you know, formally announcing uh, the restoration of diplomatic ties just the day before. uh, Emmanuel Macron and Ursula von der Leyen were in Beijing meeting with Xi Jinping, uh, which I found really interesting because you'll recall the meetings with Putin where he would be at one end of the extraordinarily long table and Macron, the, you know, yes. Macron yeah. or whoever else yeah. would be at the other end. Even Sergei Lavrov had to sit at the other end of the long table. In Beijing, uh, Xi Jinping entertained Macron and von der Leyen uh, at an enormous donut table uh, with himself at noon and uh, uh, I'm trying to think it was von der Leyen at four o'clock and Macron at eight o'clock, right? So th- they were all very far away, equally far away from one another around this donut-shaped table. Uh, and that was very far away, by the way. Uh, so uh, just and I thought that an interesting, perhaps cultural difference in sort of uh, geometric power relationships. I mean, it's certainly um, it's less ridiculous. I don't know if it's less ridiculous. It's, I just found it an interesting contrast. Uh, All right. But- so tell so Ursula von der Leyen, if you if you're curious, is a German politician who's been the president of the uh, European Commission since 2019. What, right. what are they doing in Beijing? Well, a number of things. For instance, they both there was a sort of phony good cop bad cop routine that they were playing with von der Leyen as the bad cop and Macron as the good cop. The German uh, and the French, sure. Yeah, but but von der Leyen was not there representing Germany, right? She's I know. The, she's the president of, do you? She's the president. No, I just meant tonally. She's the president of the European Commission. Right. Right. Uh, and, you know, so she talked a lot about, for instance, she said that she had told her that he would call Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky when the time was right. Mind you, she and Zelensky have not spoken since the outbreak of the war. Uh, and so von der Leyen said, she told me that he would speak to Zelensky 
when the, when he thought the time was right. Uh, Xi did not mention this in his own remarks, right? He did not say publicly, I will call Zelensky. It's just we only have it from von der Leyen that he told her that he would do such a thing. Uh, meanwhile, Macron has talked about how we don't, he, the Europe shouldn't be decoupling from China, but de-risking the relationship, right? In other words, France and other nations may might want to have more diverse supply chains, right? And, and Sounds familiar. Yes, exactly. And uh, we're, you know, in the United States, I think we're much more about decoupling, right? right. Uh, we're not actually doing it, but that's more, much more of what we're attempting to do. Is it good as the relations between the United States and China um, refrigerate, get cooler? It's good that the European Commission and the president of the European Commission and the president of, of France are still having dialogue, right? We need somebody yeah. in yeah, the West it, talking to these people. It is helpful to have an intermediary. But for instance, at the same time that Macron was in France, I'm not sure if, if French business executives accompanied him. I think they did. Uh, but they also announced that France would uh, sort of have a technological sharing deal with for nuclear and uh, renewable energy. Uh, and that Airbus is now considering opening a factory in China. Ooh. So that's not that's not decoupling. No, that's not decoupling. Uh and Airbus believes that that opening such a factory could perhaps double their output. Reasonably, I think uh yeah. that they should believe that. Uh so I guess yeah, I guess they really don't want to decouple right and we might perhaps ask ourselves how that fits in with de-risking part of me <laughs> wants to believe that if a bunch of european giant businesses like airbus or whomever are expanding in china that maybe the chinese would listen to them if they said hey you might want to think twice about evading taiwan maybe if there's if there's like a um, a multilateral economic engagement in China beyond just the United States and China, well, yeah, there could be a carrot and stick approach. For sure. instance, yeah. the, for instance, both Macron and von der Leyen uh, admonished Xi that he should not consider providing weapons to Russia right. in their war against Ukraine. They both were very explicit about that. Too. And That's hey, right. we might open an Airbus factory is yeah i mean that's a bargaining chip here's what you can get if you can play ball if you if, if you play ball but the problem is once you've opened that factory then what, what? kind of you know what are you going to do are you really going to is airbus really going to want you to shut it down that uh, is a great point and i don't you know i don't know the answers to these questions but yeah you lose all your leverage once you... There's there is a rationale for this approach. Let's right, say I don't right. want to be dismissive of it. Sure. All right. Are you ready for the uh, Are you ready for the kicker story, or do sure. you have final thoughts on Beijing? No, I mean uh, again, you know, we uh, hopefully we can have uh, consequential foreign policy stories that somehow don't involve China, which was what was so refreshing about our Nigeria story. Right? Is that you know, there's no real 
I mean, there's probably a you know somewhat something of a Chinese angle there, but very small in comparison with almost every other thing we ever talk about. We are taping this podcast on Good Friday, which is um, part of the Easter weekend, holiest uh, time of the year for uh, Christians. Um, and I want to talk about uh, specifically our Catholic listeners. Um, today is also not only Good Friday, it is the home opener of the Pittsburgh Pirates of the National League. The Catholic Diocese of Pittsburgh issued a statement earlier this week saying that they will not be granting special exemptions for fasting and abstinence of meat consumption on this Good Friday, despite it being the home opener of the Pittsburgh Pirates, which... They did not say this in the statement, but it leads me to believe there must have been a multitude of requests for special exemptions. I have to go- imagine there, there for Good been. Friday fasting and abstinence, so that they could drink or, excuse me, eat a hot dog at the at the Pirates' home opener. Right. So this presents uh, to me uh, just I can't stop thinking about this. I find it endlessly amusing. You're you're devout enough to ask for a, a special exemption, right? You know it's wrong. You're faithful enough, but you're also sinful enough to consider it, right? To think about maybe it'll be worth it. And on top of that, the pirates have been terrible, almost without exception, for the more than 30 years. So you're and if you're a believer, you're, you know, you're messing with the uh eternal fate of your soul for the pirates home opener i just i i I wanted to share that with you that's an amusing story right uh but (laughs) as you mentioned the pirates are terrible they're terrible and uh baseball is thought to be declining in popularity as is catholicism yeah right so this is you know uh a story of shrinking constituency by the way, uh, since you bring up the Catholic Church, there was a very large report yesterday uh, yesterday issued by the Attorney General of the state of Maryland, uh, neighboring Pennsylvania, uh, about the extent of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church over eight decades or something in Maryland. By the way, the oldest Catholic diocese in the country maryland uh, was a catholic colony it, well yes or not entirely but that's why it's called that yeah uh and so uh while this story about uh the pittsburgh pirates and exemptions etc is amusing uh this uh, the main story of the catholic church for 20 years now uh, is just going on and on and on and, and shows no, and perhaps uh, uh, this might be why people say, screw it, I'm just going to have a hot dog, right? Uh, you know, what what is, what what is my loyalty getting anybody, right? We'll see. I don't know, right? Have a, have a, I say have a hot dog. How about that? <laughs> 